This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo Live. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. It's October 19th, 2017, and on this week's show, more fallout from Harvey Weinstein being an alleged gross, disgusting pig and how it's affecting the film industry at large, tons of Netflix news, an unexpected move from Microsoft, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Now, I was going to give a quick update to last week's lead story about Harvey Weinstein, but so much more has happened that it's almost hard to keep track, and it remains a lead story. Hollywood right now is like in Buffy the Vampire Slayer when the Hellmouth opens up and all the worst stuff from the underworld starts pouring out. John, do you know what I'm referencing? No, I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, yeah, actually. it's an old person's joke. Yeah. Anyway, you can imagine, Hellmouth, bad stuff. That's Hollywood. In case you somehow missed it, in the past two weeks alone, more than 30 women have come forward with stories of being propositioned, harassed, or even raped over the past three decades by indie-producing mogul Harvey Weinstein. If you're interested in keeping tabs, Vanity Fair has a detailed running list on their site that's updated every time a new woman comes out. At the time of recording, the latest was Game of Thrones' Lena Headey. Yes, even Cersei Lannister couldn't escape the grip of this particular White Walker. So, here are some story updates. Last Wednesday, as we were recording, Weinstein was expelled from BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. Then, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences followed suit over the weekend, voting by near majority and making Weinstein's membership only the second one ever revoked in its 90-year history. Incidentally, the first one was for someone who broke the Academy's rules by pirating movies. The Academy also issued a statement saying in part, quote, We do not simply, meaning we do not expel Weinstein, simply to separate ourselves from someone who does not merit the respect of his colleagues, but also to send a message that the era of willful ignorance and shameful complicity in sexually predatory behavior and workplace harassment in our industry is over. Then on Monday, the Producers Guild of America's Board of Directors voted unanimously to terminate Weinstein's membership and announced the creation of an anti-sexual harassment task force to research and address sexual harassment within the entertainment industry. As Reese Witherspoon said at this year's L Women in Hollywood event in L.A., quote, This has been a really hard week for women in Hollywood, for women all over the world, and a lot of situations and a lot of industries are forced to remember and relive a lot of ugly truths. Indeed. So much has surfaced this past week in our own industry and beyond. Right on the tail of Harvey being booted out of the Weinstein Company, Roy Price, the head of Amazon Studios, resigned after being accused of sexual harassment by one of the female producers of the Man in the High Castle series. And women all over the place are revealing their own stories from onset and off. The Me Too hashtag, which is used by women who've experienced sexual assault or harassment to highlight the pervasiveness of the issue, was used more than 500,000 times in its first 24 hours on Twitter alone, including by several celebrities. A 2005 red carpet clip of Courtney Love warning women not to go to Harvey Weinstein's hotel room surfaced and went viral, as did a great story about Carrie Fisher, who sent a cow tongue in a box to an Oscar-winning producer who had assaulted TV director Heather Ross. 
The box reportedly contained a note that said, quote, If you ever touch my darling Heather or any other woman again, the next delivery will be something of yours in a much smaller box. Bam. Now, clearly harassment and assault takes place everywhere and in every industry, but this has all got me thinking about just why it's so prevalent in our particular industry. I think it's in part because we often keep weird hours and late nights and we go from project to project so it can be hard to spot patterns of behavior. Also, in terms of actors and directors, the person is the product, which makes them especially vulnerable. And fortunately, this is changing, but historically, there have been very few, very powerful gatekeepers whose bad behavior can be shielded or at least willfully ignored by all the people who want to work with them. Can I chime in on, on this? Please. So this is something that I've really been like thinking about um, in terms of this whole scandal. It's sort of like the role that power has to play within this abusive industry and it, it, it gets me it gets me like wondering about just human beings tendencies towards attraction anyways because power is like a naturally seductive thing you know and i think that once someone has power it's their responsibility like not to abuse that in a way it is something that you can easily abuse any sort of power it's it's such a seductive thing for other people too that like it puts it automatically puts those people in a sort of gray area where like oh i'm this powerful person you must be attracted to me i'm gonna like be able to take advantage of you and then people enable that by sometimes even pretending to be attracted to them to get their yeah absolutely. like it's a cycle that goes on and yeah. on it's like the classic comic book trope isn't it from superman like with great power comes great responsibility yeah it's yeah. spider-man but it's across all genders. Like you can read interviews with people who are like talking about like they had dinner with Margaret Thatcher once in the 80s and found her power very attractive. Like power is magnetic in some weird way that can twist perspectives. And what's interesting about Hollywood in particular is like power exists in lots of industries, right? But like we don't have – I honestly don't think they have nearly the problem in politics we have in Hollywood. Like in, with the exception of our president, mostly – Harassers get outed in politics and it can really damage your career. But traditionally in Hollywood, I think it hasn't. I think it's probably much more widespread than it is in politics. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the industry sort of trades on beauty. Yeah. I was just going to say it's a lethal combination just having like beautiful people relying on powerful people to get ahead. And well, and beauty is what's for sale. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, you see a billboard with a bunch of attractive people in it, and you're like, I want to watch that movie with attractive people. So it's like it is the product. Yeah, but the people coming out as being harassed aren't just beautiful actors and actresses. Like it's female – as I just mentioned, it's female producers. It's female directors. It's any female on set. It's still power. I mean, it's yeah. you know, it's still like producers can still get ahead by, you know, like doing favors, quote unquote, not like – even not sexual in nature to higher level producers or like higher level industry players. So it is the responsibility of those people who have that power not to succumb to these disgusting base needs and urges, you know, and to like actually use these people in a way that's beneficial for their career. I don't know. Obviously you're right. I mean, it, we wish that the people in power were responsible. I mean, we wish that governments weren't corrupt. But I think it's also the responsibility of everybody who needs something from those powerful people. It's, it's, 
it's the people on the sets and the writers and everybody who gives those people power by enabling them to like go on with this behavior so but I want to be careful about like feeling like well if, if a PA sees something they should you know because like fundamentally there are people on those sets who desperately need those jobs and if you're like a 23 year old PA that's not going to pay your rent if you like I feel like where the responsibility to report it's a really complicated thing for me it's the press is at least part of like and we're sitting here on a podcast for a press uh, venue. But one of the disgusting things with Hollywood is Hollywood spends so much marketing money that it corrupts their relationship with the press. And so big press venues who have this story for, you know, there's that thing about the New York Times not running this story like 15 years ago and NBC not wanting to run the story. And a big reason why is not because they have a personal relationship with Harvey. Maybe they do. But Miramax spends so much marketing their movies that it's a relationship they want to protect. So like that was the case in NBC. But what I understood from The New York Times is that the reason it never came out is because not enough women would publicly corroborate the story. Uh, and now they just did. Once Rose McGowan came out and, and disclosed yeah, her NDA, it it kind of like all broke. But along those lines, like it's easy to come out on social media and like say things from an anonymous standpoint. But once you're actually placed in the situation where your job depends on it and like you're put in the spotlight and you see this thing happen and you have to make that decision, that's a really hard thing to do. You know, you're 100%. you're taking a huge risk. Hard. So you're totally right. It's hard. I mean, that's one of the reasons it's hard to be the victim and to come out. So one thing we can do is we can make it easier when people do come out. A hundred percent. And actually, I'm going to go on to talk about yes. that, like what we can do as a larger industry to sort of make channels for reporting. For example, that's a great that's a great idea. Um, and I would love to hear listeners weigh in on kind of what's happened, like why our industry is so prevalent and what we might do. Um, but whatever reasons enable it, it's clear that we have work to do. And I applaud everyone who's thinking about what they can do to make their sets and production safer and to those who've already taken some steps, including just recognizing and sort of confessing the parts they may have played in enabling this behavior in the past. So, for example, Kevin Smith's breakout films Clerks and Mallrats were produced by Weinstein. And Smith has issued a statement saying that Weinstein, quote, financed the first 14 years of my career. And now I know while I was profiting, others were in terrible pain. It makes me feel ashamed. But he didn't just come out and say that. He's also pledged to donate any future residual profits from his Weinstein-produced films to the Women in Film organization, which I think is pretty awesome. Holy shit. Well done. I know. Kudos, Kevin. I also encourage you all to Google Scott Rosenberg, a screenwriter who worked with Weinstein for a decade, and to read his incredible account of those years. And basically, he implicates himself and everyone else in Weinstein's orbit in this kind of eviscerating memo that really illuminates a lot of what John was just talking about, like how the power structure works and how seductive it is. And it's not just power, it's money, like where there's power, there's money. And you'd really you know, be risking a lot if you don't just look the other way, which is so much easier to do. Um, and of course, you know, we're not all going to go all Princess Leia and send cow tongues in boxes, but as Charles pointed out, there are actions every single one of us can take to make our industry a better place. I recommend a good place to start might be to read a statement issued by SF Film, which they called a statement in response to sexual violence revelations in the film industry, which you can get on their site. And it lays out some simple commitments that the organization's making to combat these situations in their spaces and their programs, but it could be easily adapted for your own sets. And as I've said before, it's up to us, men and women, to look out for each other on set. So I hope that 
the No Film School community will continue to make us proud in this regard. I also think that this might be an opportunity for the unions to step in and make it very clear that they are like I work in an academic institution and I know exactly who to report something like this to. There are Title IX meetings and there's conversations. And I know like if a student comes to me and is like, this thing happened, I know exactly who I'm supposed to call. It is a clear thing. Uh, one of the things in Rosenberg's thing is he's like, there's no attorney general of the film industry. You don't know exactly who you're supposed to call. Are you supposed to call the cops? You don't have evidence. Like, but like, I think this is probably an opportunity for SAG and the behind the below the line unions to really make it obvious that they are willing to investigate, participate, have a like key point person so you know exactly where you are supposed to go. That is such a good point. Actually, just on the show a few weeks ago, we were talking about onset safety and how um, a, a union rep had written to us, you know, concerned about a story that we posted about a possibly unsafe camera situation. And if if unions, like, one of their main jobs is to keep their members safe, like, I feel like this could be an easy kind of onset safety issue for them to address. That's a good point. I hope you're listening, unions. Well, it's also, like, law enforcement can sometimes feel hard to reach. Like, is it a 911 thing? Is it a, like, do I call it a tech? Like, it's nebulous. But if there was a union rep who was, like, Title IX is an academic thing, but if there was, like, the... Works, workplace safety person to call. That would be a very easy thing that could be on the call sheet where everyone would know exactly who to get in touch with. Also, he's going to go to jail, right? Maybe. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, or maybe he'll become president. Oh, Jesus. Either way, I um, I appreciate both of your your input and uh, hope we can all keep this conversation going and, and make it productive. So moving on to another widely discussed topic, especially on our podcast. We got a whole ton of Netflix news for you this week. Let's start off with the first piece of news that most directly concerns you, the listener. Now, this is actually sort of old news, but we had a lot to talk about with New York Film Festival last week, so we didn't report on it. If you haven't heard yet, brace yourself. Netflix has again raised the monthly price of its most popular streaming plan in the U.S., with a two-stream HD tier now $10.99 per month for new subscribers, while existing customers will be moved to the new rate over the next several months. That's up $1 per month from the previous $9.99 monthly fee. That's right, it's going to cost you a whole 12 extra bucks per year to keep that streaming goodness going. Netflix last raised prices in October 2015 when the two-stream plan increased from $7.99 to $9.99. For new members, the higher pricing went into effect on October 5th, but starting October 19th, the company will begin notifying existing members about when their prices will increase. So that's today. Netflix said it will notify users at least 30 days in advance based on billing cycle on when they will see the price change. This move comes at a pretty strategic time from Netflix, considering the fact Stranger Things 2, one of the studio's most hyped-up shows ever, premieres on October 27th. No one's going to want to miss that for an extra couple bucks a year. The new season of Stranger Things is just one of a slew of original programming viewers can look forward to if they decide to stay on board. Of course, earlier this month, they released Noah Baumbach's latest film, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, and last week also saw the premiere of the David Fincher-directed drama series Mindhunter. Later this year, we'll see season two of The Crown and Bright, a cop action thriller movie directed by David Ayer and starring Will Smith, Joel Edgerton, and Numi Rapace. Next year, however, is slated to be even bigger. Earlier this week, Deadline reported that Netflix plans on releasing 80 original films in 2018. 
That averages out to roughly one new movie every four and a half days. Dang. Now, the quality of these movies remains to be seen. There's no way all 80 will be hits, and not all Netflix movies have been hits in the past. Expect them to be an active player at Sundance where they often look to pick up little indie darlings, but who knows what they have up their sleeve in terms of completely self-financed productions. Earlier this year, they announced that they would be producing Martin Scorsese's newest picture, The Irishman, which stars both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and is currently in production. It's not slated to premiere until 2019, though. All these releases are going to cost a lot of money. And to that effect, two months after Disney announced they'd be pulling their library from the streaming giant to start their own platform, Netflix has announced it will be devoting $7 billion to $8 billion to spend on original content for 2018. That's a pretty large jump from 2017 spending. The New York Times puts estimates of Netflix's 2017 content spending at $6 billion, so the company may spend as much as 33% more on originals next year. By comparison, Hulu reportedly committed $2.5 billion to original programming this year, and Amazon hit $4.5 billion. Apple made a splash recently with their mere $1 billion commitment to original content in 2018. The same report, which announced Netflix's spending strategy for 2018, notes the company earned 20 wins out of 92 nominations at the 2017 Primetime Emmys, second only to HBO, and the service added 5.3 million subscribers in Q3 with a revenue of nearly $3 billion, which is a 30% increase from the same period last year. So everything seems to be working out in terms of their strategy. Just how many people are watching these shows, however, is a secret that Netflix has been keeping closely guarded for years. Why? Well, it's pretty obvious that other streaming services like Amazon and Hulu would love to get their hands on these numbers so they can adjust their own marketing research and programming strategy to better match the alpha's audience. The New York Times reported yesterday that after years of trying to get a handle on these numbers, the TV ratings company Nielsen may have finally figured out a way to measure Netflix viewership. The move is a necessary step for Nielsen, and one that many in the industry have said is long overdue. What Nielsen's data shows exactly, and how rigorously it is measured, remains something of a mystery, because Nielsen did not release the data publicly. The move, however, is a step toward finding a reliable third-party rating system for streaming services. The company said it was able to determine how many viewers are streaming Netflix content through recognition software in 44,000 Nielsen-rated homes across the United States. Nielsen has been releasing its Netflix data privately to media companies that have subscribed to the service, including Walt Disney Company, Warner Bros., Lionsgate, and A&E. Nielsen executives said that those companies would now have the ability to access viewership figures for shows they license to Netflix, like Friends from Warner Bros., as well as originals like Orange is the New Black and Stranger Things. There are likely to be questions concerning Nielsen's accuracy, however, as the numbers include only viewers who are using a television set. If someone watches a Netflix show on a laptop, tablet, or smartphone, it is not included in the count, which is a lot of counts missed. Yeah. Additionally, Nielsen's data comes only from customers in the United States, and Netflix has made an aggressive play in international markets. Of its roughly 104 million paying subscribers, a little more than half live outside the United States, according to Netflix's third quarter earnings. Netflix has been pushing back hard on Nielsen, with Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos coming out saying the numbers gathered are wildly inaccurate, and it would seem the case. It remains to be seen just how effective Nielsen's attempt will actually be, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And now here's Charles Hain with some gear news. 
So our top story this week is that Microsoft stuck a full-size gaming GPU into a tablet's keyboard. So the Surface Book is an odd beast. It's a tablet, but they have a whole bunch of extra power designed into the external keyboard, including a lot of extra battery life, more ports, and an extra GPU. With the new Surface Book 2, which came out this week, you can now get a GTX 1050 or a GTX 1060 graphics card. They're not the top of the line 1080, but that is a massive card, and only the biggest laptops have it. But for a tablet to have a GTX 1060, it's going to process video exceptionally well. If you're worried about doing color grading on a tablet or a laptop, the graphics card is always the first place you look, and the GTX 1060 has been impressing a lot of people. So, Microsoft has also been kicking off a big push into mixed reality this week, and you can power those mixed reality headsets off the Surface Book 2. One of the things that's been holding a lot of people I know back from getting like an Oculus Rift or a Vive is that you need a really powerful computer to do it, and now there is a tablet that can run your virtual reality headset. Now, the full-size 15-inch tablet uh, in the GTX 1060, it's going to be like 2500 bucks, which is super pricey. But if you're a filmmaker who is uh, looking for a mobile solution that's going to offer you a lot of graphics power, that's actually a fairly reasonable price for something with that big a graphics card in it. And uh, I've been playing with the Surface, the original from two years ago, Surface Book, for the last couple of weeks. And uh, it's got a MagSafe adapter. It's not officially MagSafe, but it's a magnetic power cord. And it's so nice to have that back. So... Uh, check out the new Surface Book 2. Uh, up next, Zeiss has a new Milvis lens. So zooms keep getting faster and faster, but prime lenses still offer great benefits. They have lightweight, and they often have wider apertures than you can get in a zoom. Zeiss has just released another lens in their Milvis line, which is like more of a still lens, but one of the nice things about it is it's got manual focus, which makes it usable for like repeatable focus moves in video. And so the Milvis line has been very popular with, like, DSLR filmmakers as well. Uh, And the 25mm is a 1.4 lens, which is a really nice wide aperture when you're working in super low-light situations. So it's a good lens to take a look at. Uh, Next up is Adobe, who's having their Adobe Max conference in Las Vegas this week. And they just did a major push into the cloud with the new version of Lightroom. Uh, They now have Lightroom and then Lightroom Classic. Uh, Lightroom is now a web-driven app. So there's a desktop client and a mobile client and a web interface and backend, and you get one terabyte of online storage. Now, Lightroom's obviously a photo app. Why should filmmakers care? Well, if you regularly use stills to communicate with far-flung teams, if you're trying to send stills to client for approval or communicate with the director or DP or location manager or editor or colorist, you're now going to have the ability to fully manipulate your cloud photos. So instead of having to, like, fire up Lightroom on your desktop and tweak it and export it and then upload it to whatever photo sharing service you're using, all of your Lightroom tools are going to be now in the web interface and in your mobile client and all of that. So you've taken a bunch of stills on the Scout and you're driving back from the Scout playing with the stills in your iPad. You've got all the power of Lightroom in your iPad as you talk over with the director what you think, how you should color grade the shots from the location. It's also really exciting because it's clearly the first step of making the Creative Cloud actual cloud-based apps. And if they can bring the power of Lightroom to the cloud, hopefully we'll soon see the power of Premiere in the cloud, which could make life 
much easier for many, many editors and save a lot of like midnight trips back to the office to tweak one little thing. Uh, and finally, Nokia murders Ozo. Our final bit of tech news is that Nokia is pulling the plug on Ozo. For those who haven't really dived into VR, Ozo has been the easiest VR solution. It's the only like one-stop shop pre-built thing for a long time, and it's been really popular in like the VR live streaming community. If you watched the live stream of the Beauty and the Beast premiere in VR, that was Ozo. Nokia is pivoting over to eHealth, and uh, they are pulling out of VR. They just don't see a future in it that's going to be worth it for them. Um, one of the big reasons is probably this competitor that we covered in NAB called Insta360 that has a camera that's not quite everything the Ozo offers, but it's pretty close and it's only $3,500, which makes the $25,000 price point of the Ozo sort of hard to sustain. Um, they have been the market leader for the last two years, though, and then pulling out is an interesting thing for VR. So pay attention to what comes in to replace them. Thanks, Charles. And we will be right back after this very brief commercial break to have you answer an Ask No Film School question. This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Vimeo Live. Vimeo Live is the latest innovation from our favorite video hosting platform. Now, you simply don't have to worry about running a low-quality live stream ever again. With Vimeo Live, you get pristine quality across all devices. You can broadcast your live events in full HD 1080p and enjoy built-in cloud transcoding so your viewers can watch in stunning high quality, perfectly fit for their device and bandwidth. You're also sure to breathe easy thanks to reliable features and more controls. Share securely with privacy options, enjoy live chat support, and get more flexibility with RTMP without hidden overage charges. What's more, you can engage your audience from anywhere. Embed the player wherever you choose, see who's attending your event by enabling email capture in the player, turn on live chat, and view live and archive stats to track performance. Finally, Vimeo Live allows you to have one home for all your video needs. Get the best of Vimeo across your workflow for live and recorded videos. Manage and store in one place, replace archived videos with files in up to 4K, create review pages, and more. In an offer exclusive to the No Film School podcast listeners, Vimeo is offering 10% off live pro or live business accounts. Sign up using the promo code NFSLIVE. This discount offer expires 12-31-2017, is limited to one use per person, may not be combined with other offers, and will be applied to the first year of your subscription, after which time your subscription will automatically renew at the regular retail price each year until you cancel. So this week on Ask No Film School, Nora Ten wrote to ask... Any tips for renting a 360 stereoscopic camera? Speaking of the Ozo, Nora's been doing a bit of research and she says it seems like the Nokia Ozo is the only stereoscopic option out there, but it's possible my info's out of date. Is there any budget-friendly way to shoot stereoscopic or do I have to settle for one of the GoPro or other monoscopic setups? All right, that is a great question. And you are correct. At the moment, the Ozo is like the market leader. But as we mentioned above in Gear News, Nokia has pulled the plug. Now, there's still a lot of Ozos out there, and I bet the rental rates will be even cheaper as the purchase price has gone down from 60000 to 45000 to 25000 So the Ozo is definitely a thing to look at for rental. But you should also look at the Insta360. $3,500, it does stereoscopic 6K 360 video. And the brilliant Andrew Schwartz at Cinegear called it the DVX of VR. You could also probably call it the, the 5D of VR. It's the affordable camera that is going to get VR in the hands of, like, thousands of people as opposed to tens of people, and it's going to lead to an explosion of innovation. 
However, if you don't want to spend the $3,500 and you'd still rather rent them by, Radiant Images in LA is, is currently the, sort of the market leader in VR rentals. And if you get in touch with them, they will have a lot of options for you, including custom-made rigs and a variety of stuff and Ozo. Um, so worth a look. I should also mention that kitsplit.com has the largest selection of online VR rental gear, and they are friends of No Film School. Absolutely. And now for some indie movies opening up this week. In one of our top three podcasts of all time called The Worst Things a Director Can Do on Set. It's a great title. It was a great title. (laughs) I interviewed the entire ensemble cast plus the writer and director of In the Radiant City, about how not to direct your actors, and now their film is coming to Hulu this week. The talented ensemble cast who I spoke with includes Michael Abbott Jr., Marin Ireland, Madison Beatty, and Celia Weston, who you might know from Modern Family, and it's directed by Jeff Nichols' protege, Rachel Lambert. It's a very tense family drama about a man who testified against his brother when they were kids and then returns to their rural Kentucky hometown 20 years later to face his fractured family. I'm so happy that that podcast did well after all the struggle <laughs> that happened. We won't get into it, but that was a that was a rough podcast for the No Film School uh, team. <laughs> well, it's good, you know, good lesson. Things work out. And now moving on to Netflix, Mindhunter, which I mentioned earlier in the show, is out now. We're mentioning it now because earlier this week, Hawkins Dubois came out with an article interviewing David Fincher's director of photography from the series, and uh, it's a very good interview. So Mindhunter is, of course, David Fincher's newest Netflix show, which premiered last week and is now streaming. Fincher was sort of the one to kick off the whole Netflix original programming shebang with House of Cards back in 2013, and now he's back with this series about two FBI agents who expanded criminal science back in the 1970s by delving into the psychology of murder and getting uneasily close to the killers in the process. It stars Jonathan Groff and my friend Hannah Gross, who, yeah, congratulations, Hannah. This is a big show, and it's really exciting to see you come this far. Yeah, and as John mentioned, that interview uh, with the show's DP, Eric Messerschmidt, is really great. He had actually been AC on Fincher's film Gone Girl, and he got the promotion to DP on this show. And in the interview, he gets into lots of technical details about how they shot the show on custom-made red xenomorphs. So I think the camera geeks listening will really enjoy that one. We will link to it in the podcast post this week. Also coming to Netflix this week, uh, two of my favorite documentarians, Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady, have a new film. It's called One of Us, and it was on my most anticipated list for TIFF, but I actually never got a chance to see it. But I will be watching it this week in order to interview them on Friday for a future podcast. In One of Us, the directors returned to the territory that garnered them an Oscar nomination in 2007 for their film Jesus Camp which is one of my favorites, and that territory is extreme religious sects in America. In the new film, we travel far from the rural evangelical Christian summer camps of Jesus Camp to a very different world, the insular world of the Hasidic Jewish community here in Brooklyn, New York. It focuses on three young people attempting to leave the community despite threats of retaliation. I'm really looking forward to seeing it and also to asking them about how they and their two female camera people managed to film inside this notoriously closed community. And coming to theaters this Friday, you can check out Only the Brave, This movie is based on the true story of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, a group of elite firefighters who risk everything to protect the town from a historic wildfire. 
It's coming out at an oddly prescient time, given the amount of wildfires that have been raging across the West Coast. And I'll take a moment here to wish everyone in Northern California a safe and speedy recovery from the disasters that are continuing to take place over there. Only the Brave is directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who, interestingly, didn't go to film school but architecture school and then made Tron Legacy for his debut feature. It's a pretty big one to start off with. One of our regular contributors, Eric Baker, over at Technicolor, conducted an interview with Kaczynski about his journey in the film world, and you can read that at nofilmschool.com. Also coming out on Friday is Wonderstruck, Todd Haynes' latest film, which premiered at Cannes earlier this year and was nominated for the Palme d'Or. It's the story of a young boy in the Midwest that's told simultaneously with a tale about a young girl in New York from 50 years ago, as they both seek the same mysterious connection. The film stars Julianne Moore and a pair of wonderful child actors in Millicent Simmons and Oakes Feigley. Emily covered the film's P&I panel back in France, and you can read that up on the site. But also, fun fact, I mentioned last week that I was going to a masterclass with Vittorio Storaro and Ed Lachman, and Ed Lachman shot this film. It was interesting because he talked about how, as I mentioned, the story takes place in two different time periods. So they shot half in color and half in black and white with a custom stock that Kodak created just for this movie. So I will try to get a post with more details about that up soon. And meanwhile, you can read Emily's post that we'll link to uh, in the podcast post. And also out is Una. This film was released a couple weeks ago, but we're publishing an interview by Emily Booter, RIP. This she's week, not dead. She's not dead? <laughs> she's not dead, thank God. Anyways, we're publishing an interview that she made back when she was alive this week with director Benedict Andrews. It's about a woman who confronts an older man, her former neighbor, to find out why he abandoned her after they had a sexual relationship when she was 13. It stars Rooney Mara as Una, Ben Mendelsohn as her former lover, and Riz Ahmed. And moving on to grant and opportunity deadlines, the first one we've got for you is the Middlebury Script Lab, which has a deadline of November 1st. This new lab from Middlebury College, alma mater of our own Ryan Koo, is looking for six screenwriters who have a full draft that they want to workshop, brainstorm, and focus on exclusively for a week. Middlebury College will invite you to beautiful Vermont in very cold January, where they'll house you, feed you, give you some face time with people from the industry, and also lots of time to write. It's free for the participants, and they're especially looking for talented people who have had extraordinary difficulty pursuing their career in writing for the screen, which is like everyone, so you're all eligible. The organizers, by the way, have offered No Film School listeners a discount on your Film Freeway application fee. So if you send an email to screenwriters at middlebury, M-I-D-D-L-E-B-U-R-Y dot E-D-U with NFS discount in the subject line, they will email you a code to save 10 bucks off your application fee. And also on November 1st, there's the grant deadline for the ScreenCraft Short Film Production Fund brought to you by ScreenCraft and Bondit. If you've got a short script or a short film at the early stages of production, you could score five to $20,000 in financing and production services. Every six months, up to two filmmakers will be awarded the production grant, and they announce the winners six weeks after each final deadline. And moving on to festival deadlines, the film festival Kitzbühel <laughs> has a deadline on October 22nd. This takes place in Vienna, Austria from August 20th to the 26th in 2018, and this is the early bear deadline. It's set in the heart of the Alps, and the festival specializes in showcasing the work of young directors. It has prizes and is one of Movie Maker Magazine's 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. And Vienna is an awesome place, especially for film. So And for Spetzel. And for Spetzel. And for, uh, what are those other things called? Schnitzel? Oh, yeah. Spetzel and Schnitzel. Yeah. 
Kazuntite. Yep. I'm impressed with your your um, pronunciation there. Kitzbuel. Well, I've actually been to Vienna, so. Have you been to Kitzbuel? No, I wish. It looks beautiful. Hmm. Here's another one that might be tricky for some to pronounce, but not me, who studied French. The Julien Dubuc International Film Festival. Are you Festival. sure that's, the, that's it? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Okay. Anyway, however it's pronounced, in, oh, it's in Iowa, not France. Anyway, its deadline is October 23rd. It takes place in Dubuque, Iowa from April 26th to the 29th, 2018. And this is the early bird deadline, so you have a little time. They award over forty thousand dollars in cash and benefits, including a ten grand Best of Fest award, and they also pay for travel and accommodations for the top three nominees of each category. So that is a big plus. And of course, it's one of Movie Maker Magazine's fifty film fests <laughs> that exist. Yep. Just gonna start abbreviating that because most of these are on that list because it's expertly curated. And finally, the Newport Beach Film Festival has a deadline on October twenty seventh. Ironically, this is the last day to apply for their autumn discount. I say ironically because I'm pretty sure Newport Beach does not have a season called autumn. This takes place in Newport Beach, California from April 26th to May 3rd, 2018. It screens a diverse showcase of more than 300 films each year to over 54,000 attendees. It's a top 100 review film festival on Film Freeway, and it's on that list of Movie Maker Magazine's 50 festivals. It also has a ton of prizes. And as you all know, my favorite segment is Weekly Words of Wisdom. So I'm going to share some with you. I mentioned earlier the Vittorio Storaro and Ed Lachman Masterclass. Well, I wrote up part of the session on the site where Storaro's talking about the film versus digital debate. And I have to say about this masterclass, it really ended up being more of a masterclass on life. Storaro's been at this for 50 years and he has three Oscars. And you might think that he's a film purist, but I was surprised to learn that that couldn't be further from the truth. He actually started shooting digital a few years ago on Woody Allen's Cafe Society with the Sony Cine Alta F65. And uh, he basically is like totally over the debate. He said, quote, I stopped shooting anamorphic, panoramic, whatever the format is. I'm tired of numbers. He was actually a hilarious guy. He said now the only system he uses is the equilibrium in Leonardo da Vinci's painting The Last Supper. That's the system he goes for. And any other sort of ratio or sensor, he just basically ignores. And he says, again, quote, if you're shooting in panorama and digital and 3D, what's the difference? Not the energy, not the idea, not the concept. The most important thing is that concept. But the thing is that he went on even further sort of talking about the irrelevance of the actual format. And it's not just about aiding in your storytelling, but it's about those stories sort of getting at the core of who we are. He said, quote, there's no doubt in any art we put in ourselves. Why? Because we're trying to understand who we are. Through the years of practicing his art, Storaro began to feel that, quote, I was able to answer my own questions. I was able to understand the meaning of life. That's what counts, not this digital number. So it was kind of a great like slap on the wrist and uh, also just insight from such a master. Um, and a lot of comments on our site and on the Facebook page were like, whatever, that debate was over 15 years ago. But then every time we bring it up, there's like very heated responses from both sides. So I think actually the debate still rages on and Storaro's ready to put the kibosh on it. 
So speaking about slaps on the wrist, I'm just starting to put together an article I saw recapping a panel I saw Richard Linklater give on cinema at the New York Film Festival, and it's chock full of trademark Linklater witticisms. This is like the third or fourth time I've seen him speak now, and he's he's really, let's say, confident in these panels. And it comes off often a bit brash, but he's telling the truth based off his own experience. He didn't go to film school, and he actually dropped out of college completely, so much of his education came from literally going and seeing four or five movies a day at retrospectors at theaters in Texas after he dropped out. For that reason, he has a strong belief that aspiring filmmakers should be going out and seeing as much current cinema as they possibly can. In his own blunt way, he said, quote, I meet film students at the Film Society in Austin, and they're like, yeah, I haven't been to any new theater, I haven't seen anything, and I'm like, You want to make films? You're not going to make it. I can tell you right now. Go do something else. Because you don't love movies enough. You're just like, movies are fun. You can't expect anything but what you give it. End quote. In that vein, he feels strongly that you really have to be obsessed with films to be able to make it in the business. Quote, You dedicate your life to it. I've talked to people and they kind of like films and they kind of want to do this or they're thinking about that. Any artistic medium, you can't just dabble and be kind of interested. You have to dedicate your entire life to it. Really let everything else go to whatever degree you can responsibly do that. You gotta go all in. He continued, Your dedication has to be complete, particularly when you're getting started. You have all this passion for it, but you don't really have the experience within the medium, so you need to be more all in. I found more of a balance when I got older. It fit into my life. I could have a life outside of it to whatever degree. It's kind of like joining the priesthood without those prohibitions which is he's talking about sex i think (laughs) (laughs) his movies deal a lot with sex so i have to say or or maybe 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 token the reefer too because priests don't toke the reefer some probably do anyways keep an eye out for that article hopefully it'll be dropping sometime later this week so I have a nice shout out this week. Uh, New Fest, New York's LGBT Film Fest, begins tonight. It's one of the country's oldest and largest LGBT film festivals. And it also joined a couple years ago with Outfest, the L.A. Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, and the Film Society of Lincoln Center to create a national LGBT media arts organization. I'm excited to go to the opening night screening tonight, which is a doc about a New York countercultural icon called Suzanne Barch on top by directing duo Anthony and Alex. I'll also be interviewing Anthony and Alex and some other really interesting people from this year's festival for an upcoming podcast roundtable, so look out for that sometime next month. Also, I should mention that they have a really cool raffle on the site until October 24th, where for a $10 donation, you can be entered for a trip to Rome. So check that out at newfest.org slash raffle. And on next Monday's podcast, you can hear what perhaps was my most high-profile interview ever, I'd say. I sat down with Ruben Osland, director of Force Majeure, and more recently this year's Palme d'Or winning film The Square, hence why I say it's the most high-profile interview that I've done yet. The film itself, The Square, is so densely layered that if you plan on seeing it, this podcast will be a huge help in terms of understanding some of its deeper themes that Austin is trying to get across. His philosophy on film, modern art, and society in general is truly fascinating, and every filmmaker is going to benefit from hearing him talk about the finer points of his filmmaking. I'm looking forward. I can't wait to see the movie, too. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about this podcast 
and more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. We'll link to all the articles we referenced in this week's podcast post. And we love knowing that you have subscribed and rated us on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It's a big help, so please do it if you haven't yet. And stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim underscore John. Charles is at Charles Hain. And we are all at No Film School. See you next Thursday. 